stars. There is a personal touch involved in this camp that really impresses my spirit. I feel warm all over. In fact, I feel the presence of God here right now. Amen. How many feel his presence? Praise the Lord. Amen. That sounds pretty good. Let's do it again. Praise the Lord. Let's lift both our hands and praise. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. I want to read to you tonight from the book of 1 Peter, and I'll read from the first chapter and the 19th verse. Enjoy the choir tonight, brother and sister Trout. What a powerful, powerful message, and delivered so beautifully. But I want to read to you from 1 Peter 1 and 19. Maybe I'll begin with the 18th verse. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I've always taken exception to those that have referred to Peter as being unlearned and, and being an ignorant man. And I've always thought him to be a very outspoken and a very aggressive and a very brilliant man. And I think in his epistle, he shows every, every sign of being very skilled at uh, being sure that he's understood, communicates real well. And when he, when he wrote this epistle, and he began to write, and wanted to be careful to explain and to impress not only who we were, but uh, how we got to be what we were. And in doing so, he, he wrote and declared that, that the redemption did not come by corruptible things, that it did not come because of silver, and neither was it achieved because of gold, and he went further, and this is where I feel like his wordage shows a great deal of skill. He said it was not silver, and it was not gold, and it was not blood. You're very careful to let them realize that we were not redeemed by just blood. And, and uh, he was, he was standing in the uh, knee-deep in understanding 
He knew right where he was, and uh, the scheme and the plot that he had in his mind, what he was trying to communicate, he knew right where he was. He wanted you and I and all that would hear or read to understand that it was not just blood that redeemed us. But he said what redeemed us was the precious blood of Christ. It was not silver, it was not gold, and it was not just blood. But he said what has made you what you are, what has made me what I am, it was the unusual blood. It was a very rare blood. Says it was the precious blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I want to preach to you tonight, on this second night of your great camp, I want to preach to you on the thought, the precious blood. The precious blood. He said, be careful. Don't stand in all of your bloody tradition. Don't stand there in the midst of your families that are accustomed to the, the bloodletting that they have been involved in all these years. He said, don't stand there and be confused as to what has brought you to where you are now. He said, it's not the blood that have flown so deep, but he said it's that precious blood of Jesus Christ that has made you what you are. You see, for something to be precious, it has to be highly priced, it has to be something that is very rare, something very highly esteemed. The reason why the gold is so very, very valuable tonight is because it, most of us cannot go in our backyard and, and scratch around and pick up a handful of gold. And if, if you could, and if we all could, we, would, we wouldn't have to wait to go to heaven. We'd have streets of gold down here. But because gold is so hard to find and so difficult to mine, and uh, take such skill to work with and to, to, uh, to mold and to build with. It's so rare that because of its rarity, it is very, very high price. And it's just, just uh, simply because it's so very, very highly esteemed and, and so rare. There, there are some things in life that uh, as we pass through life, that they, they are special to us. Uh, not, not every chapter in your life is filled with a great deal of mystique, but uh, there, there's a chapter here there that, that uh, not a whole lot really happens. But there's always a few pages scattered through your little biography that uh, they are filled with the memories of something outstanding. They are rare, they are precious, and highly esteemed, and just being so much to you. Just something very rare. 
when the Lord spoke to Abraham and he said, I want you to go and, and take your son to yonder's hill, he did not say to him, take one of your 12 boys and offer him up as a sacrifice. But he said, I want you to take the only son of you and Sarah, your only boy, the one that uh, means so very much to you. In fact, he is even a rare son. And take the only boy you all have, take him yonder and on top of the hill and and then take him away. Such a such a rare, such a such a tremendous request. Because you see Isaac meant so very much. I was preaching some time ago and and I noticed they had a young couple that come into the service that I recognized and I couldn't remember their name when I was a little embarrassed. So I leaned over and I asked the pastor, I said, uh, kind of help me if you would in my, my old age. And I said, I know those folk, I know where they go to church. I know them well, but I can't remember their name. Would you kind of kind of help me? and? and saved me a little embarrassment. He told me their name, and, and I thanked them. And then the service progressed, and then the pastor leaned back over and whispered in my ear. I said, but uh, odds have you heard what's happened to them? And I said, no, I've not heard. I've not seen them in quite a while. What, what, what's happened? He said, well, their, their, their little girl was playing recently. She's only just, just a small child, just a toddler. And said it seemed like that everything was just fine and, and she was in good health. But said in the afternoon she began to be irritable. And then following on the, ear, on the heels of that, that irritation, there was a fever. And said by midnight she was gone and she had passed away. When, when the pastor told me that, I immediately began to search my own mind and try to find something I might could say to help them. And then he leaned back and said, he said, but Arch, not only was it a tragedy because they lost a child, but said it even compounded the tragedy because it was the only child in the only child they'll ever have. So the boy is uh, biologically is concerned, said there won't be another one for them forever. And I sat there and I thought, for as long as they live, there'll be a few months in their, in their marriage that will outshine them all. There'll be a time that, that they will remember the uh, the, the rising and the falling of that little chest and everything she did and even the things that they thought she did. And you try and buy that memory from them and I'm sure that you could not raise enough money to buy from them the precious memory, that rare experience that I had something soft passed my way, and we didn't have a very long, but we squeezed the while we could. 
And there's no way you could buy that memory. It cost too much. It was too highly priced. There are some rare things in life that money can't buy. Praise the Lord. But about a year ago, you know, uh, one, of, one of our Louisiana preachers come by and preached for me, and he talked me into skipping rope. And if he's here, I don't know. But he talked me into skipping rope, and I was doing my best. And before I realized it, I was back in the hospital, and the doctor told me it was only for a test. Said it's just just a routine test. Don't don't worry about it. Just just uh, come in on Tuesday and go home Wednesday morning, and everything will be all right. And I said okay. And now I checked into the hospital, and and I thought it kind of strange that 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 night about 9:30 my son walked in, and uh, he didn't come from around the corner, but he comes 1,700 miles just to be there for a routine test. And I thought that's kind of, kind of, you know, expensive just, just to take my temperature, you know, 1,700 miles. And then I noticed that uh, when they all began to leave, how careful they were, nobody said goodbye. And I kind of appreciated that. They all said uh, goodnight, no one said goodbye. About 10 o'clock, each in turn, they kissed me and said, I'll, I love you, Dad, and good night. I'll see you tomorrow. But I never forget, I had three children, and my, my oldest girl, her name is Deborah. And they all left the room, and Deborah kissed my right cheek. And after she did, she was, at the time, she was, oh, 17 and a half, 18 years old. And she kissed me strong right there. And then she stood up and she said, said, I love you, Dad. Said, I'll see you tomorrow. And then she walked to the door. And when she got to the door, she stopped. And she come back. And she kissed me on my left cheek. And she just stood there and kind of looked at me and and then she said, Dad, I love you very much. I said, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, okay, Deborah, see you tomorrow. She, she left and went through the door, and I could see down the hall. She went out the door and down the hall, and she just, just a few paces, and she stopped. And I watched her standing there pondering for, for just a few, few moments, and she come back in the room. And this time she leaned over and she squeezed me as hard as she could. And she kissed me for the third time. And she said, Dad, I want you to know I love you. She said, good night. I'll see you tomorrow. She, she left and on the way home they told me that the car was real quiet. And then Deborah talking to nobody, just kind of thinking out loud. She said, maybe I should have stayed there. 
And my wife said, uh, what do you mean? She said, well, I just kind of feel like I wanted to stay there all night. And a few days later, I heard all that. And I don't know how much money you have in your pocket, but you don't have enough money to buy that story. I wouldn't sell you that story in the kiss on my right cheek, in the kiss on my left cheek, in that squeeze. You couldn't buy that. The reason is, it is so costly you couldn't afford it. It is so high priced. There are some things that pass our way in life that they are not dime store experiences. There are some rare things that come our way. Peter said, I want you to know that gold did not do it. Silver did not do it but something very, very precious performed that miracle in your life. Praise God, the precious blood of Christ. Praise God. I don't know where, where Abel got his revelation. I don't really understand what uh, encouraged him to do what he did, but he stood there and he watched his, his brother uh, offer his sacrifice. He watched Cain build his altar and offer his sacrifice and then walk away with a, a rounded shoulder, a sad countenance. And Abel stood there and watched him as he left his altar consumed with disappointment. And I don't know where Abel gleaned his revelation, but Abel decided that, that I, I, I need to get on a good relationship with God. And he said, I believe that the way I can build that rapport is to bring to him something that's lively and to bring to him something that has life. And Abel brought the lamb filled the blood. And the Bible said that his sacrifice pleased God. He was pleased with the shedding of that blood. And it was a long time, this is the years before Paul ever made a statement about remission of sins being involved with blood. But way, way, way back in Genesis, Abel spilled the blood of a lamb, and it was the beginning of a river, an ocean of fast-moving blood. It was just the beginning. When, when, uh, when, the, when Noah, the ark rested there on top of the mountain after the flood, the Bible tells us that soon after his rescue and escape, Noah found a place, built an altar, and there he offered a sacrifice, one each to every clean fowl and every clean beast. When he did, he again began the movement of a tremendous amount of blood that moved its way 
Genesis all the way down through the Old Testament. We sing the song how that when I see the blood, I'll pass, I'll pass over you. But did you realize that that night when the death angel sneaked its way through Egypt, and when the Israelites began to, to paint the doorposts with the blood, did you realize that that night Israelites slaughtered 233,000 lambs? And they spilled that night, they spilled the blood of lambs, they spilled 87,000 gallons of blood. 87,000 gallons of blood. Please don't call my great preacher Peter ignorant. Peter knew where with he was standing when he identified what blood did the job. 87,000 gallons that one night was added to the river of blood that began to move through the Old Testament. When David came to the end of his reign, and David was in the process of uh, thanking the Lord for his blessing and introducing his son to the kingdom, David said, I feel like offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so they gathered and began to prepare the altars, and David offered up a thousand bullets. When he did that, he spilled that day 190,000 gallons of blood. And David said, that is not near enough. And so he gathered to that thousand bullocks, he gathered a thousand lambs and spilled 3,700 more gallons of blood. All the more men were trying their best to find a way using the blood of bullocks and goats and lambs, trying to find a way to wash their sins away. But every time they bathe in blood of goats, they always come up to the top facing their same problems again. It was just another lamb, another bullock, and the river got deep, and the flow was rapid, and it moved all the way down through the Old Testament. When Solomon built this temple, you talk about a slaughterhouse religion. He gathered up 22,000 oxen. There must have been a whole bunch of cowboys. 22,000 oxen and, and slaughtered them for a sacrifice. And when they did, they bled 418 thousand gallons of blood for that one sacrifice. Almost a half million gallons of gooey red blood. 
the ground got soggy and the air was filled with a, with a stench, but blood was everywhere. Nobody passed out. You know, nowadays some, some, uh, some ladies see a little blood on their finger and some big guys, you know, take a blood test this way. But not them. A half million gallons of blood was splashed out on the altar when Solomon's temple was, uh, was dedicated. And he said, that's not enough blood. This, this uh, 400,000 gallons, that won't do it. So then he got 120,000 sheep. And he, he offered them up to go on top of the oxen. And, and that, that uh, you know, that contributed 87,000 more gallons. And this is not a math class, because I float math. But I'm only trying to show you blood was not scarce, and blood was not rare. It was not highly esteemed, and it did not really get the job done. We shout because the fire come down and lit up the water and in the dust on top of Mount Carmel. But not only did the fire consumed the water, it also consumed seven gallons of blood. Blood everywhere. Blood in Genesis. Blood in Exodus. And blood in, in uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Blood all the way through the Old Testament. It was chin deep. And Peter realized everybody understood the psychology of a whole bunch of bullet blood. All of us. Still, after every sacrifice, as sincere as they were, they would walk away singing, no doubt, that, that chorus to themselves. They would do their best and offer and, and, and step by step, and then they'd walk back to the tent humming that sad tune, What can wash away my sins? Surely there must be something that can take away my sins. What can do it? For you see, sins were not washed away, only postponed for a future date. And Genesis all the way through, just a river of blood. It was not rare. It was not highly esteemed. In fact, every boy and girl raised. They were very much aware of blood. Isaiah stood 700 years after Solomon's temple and he shook his head in despair. Isaiah said, don't you realize he does not delight in the blood of bullets? Isaiah was saying, this is not getting the job done. The river is flowing. The blood is everywhere. But this is not really doing what we want it to do for us. 
higher price. We need something that has a greater esteem. We don't need a half million gallons. We need something rare and powerful and potent. We need something besides the blood of bullets. I remember traveling somewhere here in the South and I was listening to radio station in New Orleans. It said we interrupt this program by a special bulletin. It said there is a young girl, 15 years old, in the charity hospital. It said she has uh, leukemia. She also has smallpox. And she needs a blood donor desperately. That we we are here appealing to our listening audience. If there's anyone out there that's qualified to help, would you please come forward? So we need somebody 15 years old or younger, and they have to have a blood type being O negative. Not only 15 years old or younger with a blood type of O negative, but you yourself would have had to have had smallpox in the last 90 days. And I thought, I thought, Mr. Newsman, every time you open your mouth, you slice off a major part of your listening audience. How many 15-year-olds are even tuned in? An old negative is not a predominant blood type. And then small parts and then have to have it in the last 90 days. You just chopped away all kinds of possible candidates. And, and every, every uh, uh, degree that he, that he mentioned, every qualification he mentioned, it seemed like you made the possibility of a donor They'll become less and less and less. And Isaiah said, this is not what we are looking for. Isaiah said, this will not get the job done. In fact, did you know all the while that the bullet was being, being uh, slaughtered and the oxen was spilling its blood. Somewhere yonder, in the laboratories of glory, there was a lamb being prepared from before the foundation of the world. Praise God. One day an angel spoke to a young lady and said, That which is in you is conceived of the Holy Ghost. And she brought forth a boy. And the angel and name that boy Jesus. Praise God. It was men come and, and stood before him and brought to him gifts. But really, they wasn't very wise at all. They did not realize inside that little bitty body circulating all through that little bitty
are the most valuable commodity that ever hit planet Earth. Praise God. Twelve years of age. Twelve years old. And he stands in the in the temple. And while he stands there a few hours, men ask him some questions and he pops off the answers. And the scholars, their mouths open and their eyes real big. Oh, I wish I could have been there. If I would have been there, I'd have tapped the old wise scholar on his shoulder to hey, fella, if you think what's coming out is something you ought to see what's moving on the inside. Praise God. You see, inside that 12-year-old boy was six pints of blood. It was a half million gallons, but it don't make no difference. That's rare blood. That's highly esteemed blood. High-priced blood. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And then, and then he walked his way through a ministry. There's a chamber at the University of Florida. I've not been there. One of the, the men in the church, professor there in Gainesville, he's been there. And acoustically, it is so well designed. And you can stand in that room and very easily listen to the pounding of your heart. But he told me that some of the engineers have declared that they could stand there and listen to the movement and the rushing inside their body, the movement of their own blood. Said so it, is, it is so designed it is so quiet in there that you can stand there and listen to your blood circulate in your body. Three and a half years, he preached all over the, the Holy Land, and inside him was 13 pints of blood. When John saw him, he said, hey, folks, Take your eyes off me and take a look at who's coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. Praise God. Inside him was that precious blood. Precious blood. Don't, don't you ever consider Peter ignorant. He's a wise old boy. He said it wasn't just blood. Get all that bullet blood out of your mind. It is a rare blood, a precious blood that redeemed us. And at Calvary, at Calvary, he looked around and couldn't hardly find a friend. But while he looked for friends, he spilled a pint two pints, three pints. I know it don't sound like much. Solomon spilled a half million. But that don't make no difference. Got four pints, five pints, six pints, 
seven pints, eight pints, and, and that, that pump in his chest, just a pumping away, trying to find every drop he had on the inside. Well, you see, each drop of blood bought me a million years. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. suburb of his little community and found that last drop and the heart pumped it to its nearest opening and he spilled that last drop. When it did he said it is finished. It wasn't much but it was powerful. Only 13 little pints but oh aren't you glad for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Solomon had his gallons and David had his slaughter. But I thank God for the precious blood of the Lamb. Praise God, praise God. But you know what? You know what? There's another river flowing, flowing to our land now. Another, there's another great force flowing to our land now. The blood of goats and bullocks and lambs and turtle doves flowed Genesis all the way through. But there is a great tidal wave of promises and propositions that are flowing to our land today. And they promise us a cure for whatever hurts you. It promises you and I a, a, a cure for whatever the problem might be. But actually, it's only a, a river of bullock blood. It's a whole bunch of promises and very few, if any, and probably none at all, has it ever really produced on a promise. A few years ago, a man wrote a book, and, and it said that the book he wrote is second only to the Bible in the molding of several generations. His name is Dr. Spock. And he wrote a book on how to raise and how to take care of babies and how to raise children. He's the guy that introduced and our thinking the so-called liberal approach, the, the uh, intellectual understanding of our children. And with all of his wisdom, he, he led us into a very permissive age and bat us off, many of us, bat us away from the old-fashioned way of rearing our children. And he claimed that if you do it my way, he said, I'll empty your penal institutions, I'll empty your mental hospitals, 
and, I, and there will no longer be the frustrations and the problems that, that, that your adults have now. For he said, oh, this is a result of a frustrated childhood. And he said, you have to be better understanding with your children. And he said, by all means, don't, you know, get away from the, from the spanking and the, and the slapping around and, and uh, be careful. For he said, you can walk their little minds. He said, you, you have to approach them in a, in a scientific way and use psychology on that two-year-old. You know, that's what he said. That if, if Junior is climbing up your drapes, he said, you don't walk over there and grab him. He said, if you do, psychologically you may disturb him, and someday he'll grow up to be a wife beater because you showed him violence. And, 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 and said, what you need to do is reason with him. You know. Said, now, Junior, on your allowance, it would take you several years to pay for those rapes. You know. uh, 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 mother and Daddy uh, would really appreciate it if sometime this afternoon you would come down. What is that? He said, what you, what you have to do is to learn how to give, you know, and compromise and, and be more liberal with your children. And it was supposed to do for us. It was supposed to be the answer for all of our social problems. It was going to bring to us a world that would be adjusted and not all mixed up. And we bought it. And, and, and put it to practice. And the result is we have found ourselves in the midst of a great promiscuous season of time. And it promises everything, but it produces nothing. It flows down your street and down my street and has great billboards, but don't ever really live up to its billing. It's only a bunch of promises. It says, be liberal, be broad-minded, be understanding, and we'll bring to you a complete happiness. But it's only a bunch of bullets. It don't really get the job done. It don't get the job done. In New Jersey a few months ago, they locked the doors on a junior high school because the, the school was in the midst of a, of a terrible epidemic. Was it the measles? No. Maybe it was the months, no. But that junior high, a school of children, was in the midst of a great epidemic of suicides. 
and they all went to school one Monday and one was missing and they heard what happened and the students gathered around in little caucuses all over the, the school grounds and tried to figure out why why he did it and, and in one of those little groups it was decided that he he the, he took his life because he was lonely and, and always frustrated. In that little group, on the outskirts of that little group, stood another boy. And he said, you know what, to himself, he said, that sounds like me. He said, I'm lonely and I'm always frustrated and the girls don't like me and my parents don't understand me. And when they, when, they, when they got to school on Tuesday, there was two missing. And when they got to school on Wednesday, there were three missing. And when they got to school on Thursday, there were four missing. And on Friday, they locked the doors and said, we have to do something to stem the tide. Something's got, got into this young folks' minds. And, and, and we have to lock doors because our children are confused and, and, and filled with all kind of unwise thinking and in spite of the fact that all this liberalism was supposed to free their mind and, and loose them from all their anxieties and inhibitions but it's only a big bunch of promises it's, it's a few hundred thousand gallons of bullock, and that's all it is. That's all it is. I got to the hospital, and there sat an old man, the church I pastor. He mortgaged his home 30 years ago to build the church I pastor. He sat there with a a day's growth of whiskers. He'd been there so long, he was, he was dozing. Been sitting there in the waiting room at the hospital for a long time. When I got there, I, I tapped him on his leg and, and, and he, he jumped. And I said, I'm sorry, I would have been here sooner. But I said, I only heard about it about a half hour ago and I'd come as soon as I could. I said, I'm going to go in and I'll call her Susie. I said, and a frightened young girl and a, and a, and a preacher. I sat there and talked to her. The longer I talked, like, like Brother, Brother Betson said this morning, I began to get that burn on the inside. And I knew I couldn't show it on the outside because it would upset her. And I held her hand and talked to her talked to about her soul, talked to about the future, and, and how that, how that uh, God understands all things. And finally she said, she said, but I, I think, I think I understand what you're saying. She said, I think what you're saying is that a few hours ago I was a grown lady, but now I'm a little girl again. And I said, well, perhaps that, that might be a pretty good definition of what I'm trying to say. But I said, at least you can start over again and 
I was trying so hard to be tactful, but inside me, I wanted to scream. I wanted to karate chop somebody. I didn't care who, just anybody. I wanted to, I, I felt, I felt hostility. I just sat there and finally we prayed and I walked to the door and I waved goodbye and when I closed the door, I, I, I thought, I hope somebody bumps into me. And if they do, I'm going to break their neck, just anybody. I felt like screaming at the top of my voice. I felt like screaming, hey, hey, wise guy, where are you? Hey, crowd, where's, where's the music that said this was the way it was supposed to be done? Where's the crowd that said everybody's doing this? Where's everybody there? I felt like screaming, saying, you've let this screw down. Where are you there? Nobody there. You see, all that is, is a bunch of promises. They are, they are not fulfilled. They only bring depression and defeat. It's only a river of propositions that don't come to pass. Talk to a couple that lived together two years. I said, why don't you get married? They said, don't you know, preacher, this is the way you do it now. I said, oh, we want to find out if we are compatible. I want to, want to see how she fries her bacon and see what kind of, what kind of housekeeper she is. And said, uh, everybody does it this way. And I, I said, no, not everybody. Not everybody. But you see, you see that, 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 that river of promises that's, that's sweeping our land now, and we dare not deny it's there. It is everywhere swirling around us with a whole bunch promises it's supposed to alleviate problems but all they do is create problems they lived together two years and decided this is the real thing and they got married and they were married two weeks and she said me married to you said, you think I'm crazy? And he looked at her and said, I think I'm retarded. But everything around them at school and the job, in the media, in, in the movies, in the, in the newspaper, everything said, this is the way you do it. Don't buy shoes until you wear them for a while. But it's only a bunch of promises. You see, it claims to solve problems, but all it does is create problems. Oh, what a what a promiscuous day! What a permissive age we live in! I'm not just preaching against the sin, but I'm trying to. Impress you with the idea 
These are the sins that were supposed to help us. It was supposed to empty our penal systems, not fill them to overflowing. It was supposed to empty our mental hospitals, not make us feel bigger and more. It was supposed to be the answer to our social ills. But I want to know what has it helped at all. At the general conference, I was sitting with my wife and brother and sister Parker in, in a pancake house. You know, you, you can't be more domestic, you know, than to go to a pancake house. Bright lights, no music, a pancake, you know, strawberry, maple, and pineapple, you know, just pancakes. And I was sitting there and, and uh, I had a I had a cup of coffee about halfway between its, its launching pad and my lips. And I was doing my best to negotiate it all the way up and, and I got it about halfway up and I noticed on the, on the side of my table, I noticed some legs passing by. And then I noticed I noticed it had a foot about that long, and it was in high heels. And and you talk about you talk about a, a launch and being canceled. It was canceled. I got my cup back down, and I thought, what in the world? What did I see? It had a great big old leg and a foot about about that long. And, and it, it went behind me, and my my wife is not not uh, not always very tactful. And before I could get the cup down, she out loud she said, "Ah!" Just laugh. And I I turned around and and there it went. It had shoulders about that broad. Great big neck, whole bunch of hair, and all your laughter just proved my place. So you fell for that one. Twenty years ago, if a preacher was to dare and even discuss homosexuality in a public place, you would have bowed your head and you would have thought I was out of place. But now we have all been swayed somewhat by the movement of that vicious tidal wave moving through our land. We used to regurgitate and now we giggle. We used to blush. And now we listen for the cute stories. Ten thousand marched down the streets of Chicago yesterday and said, oh, we gays and lesbians said we are a political force and you will learn to reckon with us. Oh, what a, what a day we live in. A whole 
promises, but I hope and pray you are not being swayed by the message of a promiscuous hour. It won't produce. Maybe, maybe you listen to the to the message of the the economy. They're telling our high school seniors that in your lifetime you will have a average pay of a hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. And our high school seniors, some of the kids back home where I'm from, they heard that in their heads got dizzy, $10,000 a month. But you see, what they did not tell them was that though they would be making something like 10 a month, a three-bedroom house will be costing you about $318,000 in the next 40 years. What they, what, what, what they didn't tell the, the senior was, all, all they said was how much you would make, but did not tell them that milk would be about $12 a gallon, and, and bread would be about $10 a loaf. What I'm trying to say is, there's a whole lot of movement going through, but I hope you're not being fooled by its propaganda. It's a well that you go to, but it won't quench your thirst. You go back again, and back again, and back again. Maybe the young folk here tonight, you'll be swayed by what you call peer pressure. What amazes me, why is it that juniors and senior age Young people are so interested in, in what they call peer pressure. Don't they realize that 40 year olds have peers too? 50 year olds have peers. Everybody has peer pressure. And we dare not be swayed by the opinion of the majority of your peers. For if you do, you'll be caught up in the eddy of a whole bunch of bullocks. Caught up in just a whole bunch of promises, propositions. Maybe you hang in your hat for the future on a, on a, on a system that's going to get better. Politics. It's somehow going to put money in your pocket and a castle to live in. Oh, if you believe that, you can't read. If you believe that your future, uh, anything good will come from our political system, then you don't know anything at all about what's caving in around you. But aren't you glad in the midst of all these promises fail in the midst of all these propositions that don't produce, in the midst of a society as falling apart at the seams, yet situated on the banks 
of a beautiful dispensation is the body of Christ. It's still there, situated on strategic corners all over the world. It's the church, praise God. It's 2,000 years old, but it's still young, and it's still powerful, and it's still dynamic, it still promises, and it still produces. Oh, yes, Hallelujah. Oh, Brother, Brother Hayward went to his prayer closet one day. He, he, he pled with the Lord to give him something new, something fresh. He said, I want to feed my people. I want to feed my flock. That great black pastor, preacher, scholar, teacher, on his face before God, give me something to feed my flock. And then the Lord dropped something in his heart as old as Calvary and as fresh as today's breeze. He left that prayer closet and went to his pulpit. He said, folk, I've heard from God for something that you can use today. He said, a sin and sadness whisper to you that it's too late to pray, that you shouldn't try to pray, that you ought to throw your hands up and just give up. He said, what you need to do is to look away to Calvary and to look away to Jesus and when you do you're going to see a crimson stream of blood praise God 2,000 years later it's still flowing it's still moving only 13 pipes but it's never lost its power amen Oh, yeah. It's more powerful than government. I said it's more powerful than government. It reaches higher than astrology. It has a greater backing than a down Jones average. It is only 13 pints. But oh, what a tremendous reservoir this blood comes from it came not from just a man but it came from jesus praise the carrier of that great in that precious blood praise god aren't you glad for the blood of jesus christ praise god praise This has been for me a wonderful experience. Two nights at Louisiana camp, chance to preach. And I'd like to ask you a favor. If I should die before I wake, if I should not make it home alive, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please don't weep for me.
Amen.